0: Well, good evening, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Doug, and I'm the worship director here at Calvary. I normally do what Jake does, but I am going to be teaching for the next three weeks. Yay! So if you don't like it this week, then maybe take a vacation for the next two weeks. I don't know. We'll we'll see how it goes. I won't be offended, I promise. But uh, this is just a good opportunity for me to get some practice in. And practice sermon prep and and practice preaching. So, thank you for letting me be here. So, I wanna share a story with you to start this out. It's called Scaring the Cab Driver. So, there's a cab driver who's just driving along and just doing his thing, and then the passenger in the back taps the cab driver on the shoulder. And the cab driver freaks out, he's like, what? drives off the road, goes on the sidewalk and almost hits a couple cars, almost hits a mailbox, and stops right before he slams into a, a big old pane of window. And the passenger is like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't think that I would scare you so badly. And he's like, oh, no worries, no worries. It's completely my fault. It's my first day driving a cab. I've been driving a hearse for the last 25 years. <laughs> As humans, fear is something that we inevitably face And if you claim you have no fear, you're probably just afraid of what other people think of you. Got him. But, you know, I'm really, I'm preaching this to myself today because I'm quite fearful of teaching and preaching sermons. It's like, it's like the one thing I really not super comfortable with. So I'm kind of preaching this to myself here. But today we're going to be focusing on the beginning of the story of Israel's fifth judge, Gideon, who was a man who experienced quite a bit of fear as God called him to save Israel. So, we're going to be in Judges 6 today, and for your information, I'm going to be teaching out of the ESV, because that's what Cody's been doing for a while, and I'm a trend follower, not a trend setter. apparently. So, why did God put this in the Bible? I believe he put this in the Bible to teach us we need to focus on God's strength and wisdom, not our weakness and fear as we act in obedience to God. So, let's go ahead and read together. Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land, as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to help, for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So we're going to see here in the beginning of chapter 6 that we are repeating the cycle of judges that Cody has been introducing us the last couple of weeks. So see there it says, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they are unfaithful and that leads to God punishing the Israelites through oppression. In Judges 2.19, it says, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So, they're unfaithful, and this leads to the next part of the cycle, oppression. The Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So, if you remember the first time I preached a long time ago, it was Numbers 31. Um, we talked about kind of the genocide of the Midianites, but they're back! Woo, yay! Uh, just like me, you can't get rid of me. So, the Midianites at this time in history were nomads who utilized camels for travel. And during this time, they were basically moochers who let the Israelites grow their crops. And at harvest time, they would take all their stuff, which is super annoying. Um, their strategy at this time wasn't to invade and take over their land. They let Israel do all the hard work, and then they reaped the benefits. So this kind of reminds me of, uh, like, teenagers mooching off of their parents' food. Anyone? Can you relate? Anyone? No? No one had teenagers? Come on, somebody. Or this reminds me of myself at my in-law's house, because my parents now live in Missouri. You know, they do all the hard work, and then I just come and eat their food. Similar thing, right? So when it comes to the oppression in Judges... Some might say it's quite harsh if the Lord allowed that. But God is acting like a good father who loves his children. He isn't going to sit idly by and let them do whatever they want. He is disciplining them. So we see through this oppression that it leads the Israelites to repentance, the third part of that cycle there. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So in this instance, God sends them a prophet to them who reminds them of God's deliverance from Egypt. Hey, guys, I led you out of Egypt. I did all these good things, remember? I like how uh, Dale Ralph Davis said, this would be like a stranded motorist calling a garage for assistance and the garage sending a philosopher instead of a mechanic. So imagine that situation, right? Someone's broken down on the side of the road. They call up AAA or whatever, and they're like, hey, please please send someone out here philosopher shows up and is like, brother, I think you're asking the wrong question. The question isn't if the car is broken. Maybe it's lost in this vast expanse of the universe. That's not helpful. That'll be $1,000 and your insurance doesn't cover it. But in all seriousness, the prophet lets them know that their disobedience is the cause of their oppression. And there is grace in this response because God wants to instruct the Israelites as opposed to just pacifying them. And how often in our own lives do we just want to get out of a bad situation? But God wants to grow us through instruction so that we can actually learn our lesson before getting out of the situation. So this is similar for the Israelites in this situation. They haven't learned their lesson. They keep repeating the cycle. So God's going to let them know, hey, this is what you did wrong. You disobeyed me. I told you not to do this. You did this. When will you learn that your actions have consequences? So... The real problem in Israel was not the Midianites' oppression, but Israel turning their back on God with idolatry. And for us, reading Scripture here, looking back, it seems so obvious, but really, would we do any better if we were in their shoes? I mean, just yesterday, I was, I, I was working from home, and I was just prepping this, and I got to spend a lot of time in the Word, and it was really awesome, feeling connected to the Lord and all that jazz. And, you know, I go downstairs to make lunch. It was, this is was literally five minutes after I took a break, and my brain has a totally inappropriate thought, and I'm not going to tell you what that thought is, but I'm like, if it takes me five minutes, not saying I'm holier than thou or anything, but like, if I'm just in the Word of God, and it takes me five minutes to just completely, you know, go off the rails in my own mind, just imagine these, these generational things where you can see the generation changing and shifting and forgetting. So this is something we see happen time and time and again. and really comes up here in the book of Judges. So let's continue reading in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joaz the Abizorite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, the Lord is with us. Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man." So here we are introduced to the characters of Gideon, the angel of the Lord, and the Lord. So a little bit of information about Gideon, who we're going to be focusing on for the next three weeks. Gideon is the youngest son of Joash from the Abizorite line of Manasseh who lived in Ophrah. So in the book of Judges, there's actually more space devoted to Gideon, 100 verses, than to any other judge. And Gideon is the only judge whose personal struggles with his faith are recorded. Another interesting thing to note is in Hebrews, he is included in the hall of faith. Gideon's name means hewer or hacker, and we'll see how fitting this name, in as name is for him as we get into this text. And Gideon's family were Baal worshipers, as we'll see later here in the chapter, but we're not given any evidence in this text that Gideon himself worshiped Baal. We also know he was familiar with the history of Israel and of God's deliverance. And a common theme we're going to see with Gideon is that he is quite fearful when it comes to the commands of the Lord. And he's quite fearful in general. In fact, in this section right here, we see that he is beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, if you know anything about uh, beating wheat, which I don't know, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but normally what they do is it would be out in a big old open field in, in an elevated position. And as they're beating the wheat, they would throw it up, and the wind would take the lighter chaff, and it would blow it away, and then the heavier stuff would fall. So being in a wine press, which is usually lower down uh, because of the way the, the juice ran, they wanted to preserve it all, uh, wouldn't be quite ideal to do this job, but here he was, cowering for the Midianites in this place. And then we were also introduced in this section to the angel of the Lord. So you may already know this, but as I was setting. Uh, Something that I found interesting is that the word Lord that you see in Scripture with all capital letters is what most English Bible translators use in place of the divine name or Yahweh, which is revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. So Jewish scribes viewed the name with such reverence that they didn't want to speak it out loud when they were reading from the Scriptures. So they wrote out the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai, and there's more to that But basically, the Hebrews wrote out Adonai, and a lot of the English translators use LORD in the all-caps, and sometimes it's like all-caps with small caps. But if you look in your text there, you can probably find it. So the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon and tells him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So in this moment, angel of the Lord shows up, and he approaches Gideon and says, Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, to this fearful, cowering man. And so the Lord in this moment is seeing Gideon as he will be, not as he currently is. So I like to think of it like a high school or college sports recruiter, right? When they're there watching the games, those athletes that they're watching and scouting out probably aren't playing on a pro level at that point, right? And so they're looking and they're, they're seeing their potential and they're saying, if I was to recruit that youngster into my team and we give him some proper training, he could become something great. So. Similarly, the Lord is seeing Gideon as he will be because the Lord knows what he will be. So I really like how Gary Inrig put it, and it's funny because it sounds like Gary Imig who's right there. I didn't know you were a Bible scholar, Gary. But he says, one of the great truths of Scripture is that when God looks at us, he does not see us for what we are, but for what we can become as he works in our lives. There's great encouragement there that God invites us to play an active role in his plan. That we can be a part of his plan. Because really at the end of the day, God's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He doesn't need us, but it's really cool to know that he invites us to be a part of that plan. So, the angel of the Lord commissions and says, Hey, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response is, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. In this moment, he didn't disbelieve God so much as he couldn't wrap his mind around how he could be used by God. He was the youngest in his family, and the family itself was not one of significance in Manasseh. But throughout Scripture, we see God choosing weak things, the weak people, the weak things of the world, to show his strength. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, it says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Kind of similar to what Cody was talking about in Judges 4 and 5 last week. It's so easy for us as believers to focus on our own weaknesses instead of God's strength, because sometimes we get it backwards. We think, wow, look at all these things I can offer God. I bet he could use me. I'm a pretty good teacher myself. I'm a pretty good musician myself. I'm not saying that about myself. I'm just using it as an example. But we need to flip our perspective and think more so of God's strength. Wow, God, I hope that I can lean on your strength and your wisdom to teach this. To to lead this worship set, whatever it is. So let's continue reading in verse 17. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and the broth he put in a pot, and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes, and put them on this rock, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat in the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Beisarites. So, he just has this encounter with the angel of the Lord, but he needs to be for sure. He needs to be for, for sure, for sure. So, he says, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. And the angel of the Lord says, I will stay till you return. So, Luckily, God exists outside of time because this probably took Gideon a while to prepare because he had to go, you know, slaughter a goat and then prepare the unleavened cakes. It probably would have taken him a while. So N. W. M. Thompson says in his book, The Land and the Book, among unsophisticated Arabs, even today, the killing of a sheep, calf, or kid in honor of a visitor is strictly required by their laws of hospitality and the neglect of it keenly resented. So although Gideon was requesting a sign, he was also offering a gift of hospitality. So uh, when he brings that back, the angel of the Lord then gives Gideon some instruction to put the gift on the altar, consumes it with fire, and then vanishes. I don't know about you, but I'd be pretty freaked out in that situation. If I were just having a conversation with someone, then fire and vanish, I'd be like, whoa, I don't know about you, that would freak me out. And Gideon was terrified right after this because he puts the puzzle pieces together and he realizes, oh my goodness, I just, I just talked to the Lord face to face. I'm going to die. <laughs> but the Lord reassures Gideon, peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Because remember, it was a big no-no in the Old Testament for anyone to see the face of God. They would normally die, but God reassures them, you're not going to die. This was supposed to be a sign of assurance for him with the fire, and then it scares him. But When he hears that reassurance, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die, it strengthens him. And he built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. Just a little side note here. Did you notice the different names used for God in these sections of verses? I bring this up because I was quite confused when I read through it the first time. I feel like this is the first time I've read Judges through um, adult eyes. And so there's a couple of different names being used for the Lord here. Uh, The angel of the Lord, the Lord, the angel of God. So doing some study on that, I found the language here is distinguishing the Lord from the angel of the Lord, but is still using it interchangeably, referring to him as one entity. And there's a debate about whether the angel of the Lord is actually Christ pre-incarnate or just a physical appearance of God. I I personally lean towards the idea of the angel of the Lord being Christ pre-incarnate. And there's a really cool video on YouTube by the Bible project. It's called The Angel of the Lord. So if you want to learn more information, I'd recommend checking that out. But the Bible project states, it says, the most reasonable conclusion to draw is that this blurring of identities between Yahweh, remember we talked about earlier, the Lord, Yahweh, same thing. Yahweh and the angel of Yahweh is an intentional strategy aimed at making a profound theological claim about the identity of Yahweh. The God of Israel is a complex unity who is both transcendent and above all, yet simultaneously present and accessible within creation through a mediating person who is both Yahweh and distinct from Yahweh. So, God, distinct from God, sounds like Christ to me, but, you know, research it yourself and tell me I'm wrong. So let's keep reading here. Verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bowl, and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of Asherah that you should cut down, that you shall cut down. So Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So the Lord here gives Gideon his first instruction. Take down the altar of Baal and the pole of Asherah and build an altar to God in its place. These two things can't exist in the same place. The altar of God, altar of Baal, that's got to get out of there. So in order to do this, Gideon has to oppose his whole town and family who were Baal worshipers. And that's a pretty scary thing to do. But in comparison to what God is calling them to do in the grand picture, this was relatively small. Uh, Once again, Gary Inrig notes that there are some profound spiritual implications in Gideon's assignment. One, Baal must go before Midian can go. Two, God's altar cannot be built until Baal's altar is destroyed. And three, the place we must start is in our own backyard. In our personal lives, God often entrusts us with smaller-scale duties before he entrusts us with bigger things. Luke 16.10 says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So when I, when I think of that, I think, what has God tasked me with? What has he called me to? And am I being faithful to those things? That's a question we can all ask ourselves. So once again, we see Gideon being fearful in the face of what the Lord commanded him to do, but he does it anyway, in the cover of night. So in doing this, he he once again he has to take a stand in the face of the public for his belief. And in our own lives, we may have moments where we have to stand for our faith. We often criticize people like Gideon, who didn't stand as boldly as we may think he should have. But once again, it's like, would we do any better? You know, I always think of situations where people are martyred for the sake of Christ. And it's, all right, if you say you believe in Christ, then you're going to die. And I'd always like to think to myself, I would totally die for Christ. I got scripture tattooed on my arm. I can't deny it. But like, I don't know how I would respond in that situation, right? Or even everyday smaller type things, evangelism. Evangelism is something I've always personally really struggled with. Um, If you put me in a room full of Christians and we're all talking the same lingo, I I have a much easier time with that because we're all speaking the same language here. But to stand up and have my beliefs challenged, it's always been really difficult for me. But no matter what situations we face in our life, whether big or small, where we have to stand for our faith, we can seek the Lord and ask for strength every day to serve Him well. So even though Gideon was afraid... It was the confirmation of God's presence that allows Gideon to pull down the idols. So, I'm using my personal Bible tonight. It's called the ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible. There's a note here I really like and I want to read it. So, it is confirmation of God's presence that enables Gideon to pull down idols. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. God promises to be with us forever. It is only through Jesus' work on our behalf that we are able to destroy the strongholds of idolatry. So, I don't know. I know most of you in here, but some of you I don't. I don't know where your stance is with Christ. I don't know if you have a personal relationship with Christ. But one thing we always remember about Scripture is it's, it's always pointing to Jesus. So we're in the Old Testament, and you see so many times that it's pointing to Jesus being a Savior. And so if you don't have that personal relationship with Christ find the person in here who's got the biggest Bible, or feel free to come talk to me afterwards. Is that something you're interested in pursuing? So we're going to continue in verse 28 here. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar hath been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, Baal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So the men of the town search out who destroyed the altar, and Gideon had ten other men with him, so word spread quickly, and they found Gideon out. And they weren't too happy about what Gideon did, and they wanted to kill him. So in contrast to the response of the town... Joash, Gideon's father, stands up for him. Maybe it was the boldness of Gideon's actions that inspired his father, or maybe it was in defense of his son, but either way, Joash has a change of heart. Because remember, it was actually Joash's altar that was torn down, the one that he had built for Baal. And it would also make sense that Joash knew of Israel's history and how God delivered them, because Gideon's family must have passed down the history for Gideon to know about. He says earlier, the history that our fathers passed down. So that would make sense. So Joash uses a logical argument in Gideon's defense. The way my brain understood this response is, don't you think that your God is tough enough to fend for himself? If he is God, let him defend himself. Don't stand up for him. It's kind of like the school bully sending out his minions to beat people up. You know, if the, if the bully never picks a fight himself or never fends for himself, you know, he's probably not all that he's cracked up to be. So this is kind of Joash's argument in defense of Gideon. Joash then gives Gideon a really cool name, Jerub Baal, which means let Baal contend against him. The only nicknames I ever got in my life were like Dougie Fresh, Snoop Dougie Doug, Dougie Doolittle. Like maybe I should go tear altar down to earn a cooler nickname. I'm kind of jealous. Anyone else have any cool nicknames? Maybe. I'm going to give you one. Logan over there. Logan Fee's dollar sign. He's got a cool nickname. I need a cool nickname now. (laughs) Anyway, let's continue reading on in verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abizorites called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So... The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together. It's that time of the year again. It's time to go plundering. Come on, boys, let's go get that bread. So they're excited. They're they're, they're joining up. They're squatting up. And they're about to go raid the Israelites like they do every year. So it's in this moment that the spirit of the Lord clothed or, or came upon Gideon. J. Clinton McCann says of this section, When the Spirit of the Lord first appears in Judges, in chapter 3, verse 10, it possesses Othniel, the first judge, and deliverance follows immediately. Here, however, when the Spirit possesses Gideon, and despite the auspicious sign that several tribes fall into place when Gideon sounds the trumpet, verses 6, 34-35, Gideon hesitates, as we will see here in this final section, chapter 6, verses 36-40. Let's go ahead and read that. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, He wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So, he has this moment where he is possessed by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. But yet, he is still wrestling with questions and doubts and insecurities and fears in his own heart. And it's easy for us as believers, those who have a personal relationship with Jesus and are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, it's easy for us to to have those doubts and insecurities as well. But, we still need to respond to the call of the Holy Spirit. So one time I was at Bible camp, and I don't remember who I was talking to, but um, we were talking about the Holy Spirit, and this still small voice, um, and how He guides and directs us. And that person told me, there is a window of opportunity that we have to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And if we don't seize that window of opportunity then we're ignoring the voice of the Holy Spirit and becoming more numb to it because we're choosing not to listen. We're choosing to, in a sense, disobey. So it's important for us to be mindful of that, to be mindful of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Tom Powers gave me a packet, and it was a whole article about the Holy Spirit. It was something that he gave me a couple of years ago, And I found it to be really helpful for me thinking through what is my relationship to the Holy Spirit like. So in it, the author was talking about how every morning he would wake up and before his feet hit the floor, he would say, come, Holy Spirit, come. Not that the Holy Spirit ever left him as a believer, but it was just a reminder for himself to focus in on the fact that the Holy Spirit was present And from there, he made the choice to say, all right, I'm going to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit today as I go out and do the things that I need to, instead of just thinking of the Holy Spirit as a vending machine or something that I can access when I need help. So I think it's really important for us as believers to have that remembrance. And whether it's trying that in the morning or whether it's just your prayer life or whatever it is, being aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit and responding to it more so that we become even more sensitive to his leading. So Gideon is having his doubts, right? So he needs some extra testing. He needs to make extra, extra sure. So this is when Gideon tests God with the fleece for the first time. So he has a fleece on the threshing floor and he requests for it to be wet and for the ground to be dry. So, goes to bed, wakes up the next morning, it's done. God did it. He followed through. And he demonstrated once again to Gideon that he was willing to give him a sign. And maybe Gideon had a thought like, wait, fleece might naturally attract moisture. Hey, wait, wait, can we do it one more time? One more time. I promise I'll stop bugging you after this. One more time. So, just to make extra, extra, extra sure, Gideon tests God with the fleece the second time. But it was the opposite way. He wanted the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. So, God does it again. He does it. Now, as I was reading through this, I asked myself if there was any sort of special significance of the fleece. But I think Daniel I. Block says it best when he said, Gideon's fleece is not a sign of faith. It is the opposite. It is not a search for God's will is a desperate grasp for security by one who knows clearly what that will is, but who is reluctant to do it. So how often are we reluctant to do God's will? And I've really enjoyed studying this chapter this week because I have been asking myself the same question. I know in my life there's been a lot of times where I, I've sensed the leading of the Lord and I've resisted it. And it never really worked out for me. But the times that I have said yes to the Lord and followed it, he's always, always come through. He's always taken care of me. He's always provided for what I needed in that moment in order for me to follow that calling. And Gideon will experience this as we move on to chapter 7 next week. We're going to see that the Lord takes the army that he's building here at the end of chapter 6, and he's going to whittle it down. Because... He says, Gideon, you're the one I'm going to send. But Gideon needs some reassurance. He needs some extra people. He needs all these things. He needs these signs of security. But God says, no, I got you. We can ask ourselves that question. But there there is hope in our human fear. As we see here with Gideon, God is very patient with us. He will accomplish what he sets out to do, and he invites us to take part in his plan. How many of you, this is, feels like a diversion, it's not, I promise I'll wrap it back in, but how many of you are familiar with cross-stitching? Raise your hand. Anybody familiar with cross-stitching? For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it kind of looks like this. This is the back of a cross-stitch, and uh, I'll show you the front in a second here. This is my wife's. But it's where you take yarn, thread, whatever, <laughs> and you sew into a pattern, and on the back you kind of got all these floppy things and you're like, what, what exactly is that? Kind of a, a similar thing with, say, like a knit cap, right? You see all this, this yarn hanging out, right? And that's kind of how we can see life, the things that God is directing us to do. All we see is kind of the, it kind of makes sense, kind of, but we can't really see the full picture. But God, on the other hand, if you can see that, my wife made that very nice. She's opening an Etsy shop. Just kidding. But God sees the completed picture. God knows what he's doing. As my wife knows what she's doing with knit caps. <laughs> Love you. We would be best to trust God in our lives and circumstances because he has a plan and knows what's best for his glory and our good. Warren Weir'sby said of Gideon that Gideon is a great encouragement to people who have a hard time accepting themselves and believing that God can make anything out of them or do anything with them. I don't know if anyone else has felt like that before, but I know I, I personally struggle with that a lot. So let's have Jake, come on, start coming up here as we, as we close out. But like Gideon, we may fear the role God has for us to participate in. But let us shift our perspective and focus on God's strength and wisdom, not our weakness and fear, as we act in obedience to God. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are a God of strength and wisdom. That even in our times of rebellion, that you are a God of kindness. Lord, that you see us for who we are. We see us in the depths of our sin, and yet you chose to send your Son to die in our place, Lord. You see us as who we can be, Lord, when you work through us. Lord, we ask and we pray that as we go out from this place, that we would keep in mind that you are the one who ultimately provides. You are the one that we lean on. You are our rock. You are our fortress. Let us not focus so much on our fear and our own weakness, but instead see you in your strength and your wisdom and say, yes, Lord, where you lead, I will follow. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.